Good morning. I think we will go ahead and begin. There may be some uh, latecomers who join us. My name is Linda King. I'm from Edmond, Oklahoma, and I thank you for being here today. Uh, although I have to say everyone in here is probably about half crazy because it is so gorgeous outside. We ought to be having this class outside, but PowerPoint doesn't work so well in brilliant sunshine, so we'll spend an hour in here, but be sure and have some time to go out and celebrate the beauty outdoors. It just makes you uh, want to burst forth in praise, even if you're not a singer. But I happen to know we have a couple of singers in here. So uh, how about if we just begin with uh, sharing the doxology and let's, uh, let's slow down on the last three syllables. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you. Well, my, our title today is Perspective, Is There a God's Eye View and Can We Know It? Now that's a compound question and it doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to be answered entirely with one word. The first half, I think most of us might say, well, yes. In the Old Testament, in our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, over and over there's uh, a, a judgment, a an evaluation that says, and Jeroboam uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or uh, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or king after king of Judah and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There are some Old Testament passages that talk about um, he has shown you what is good. Uh, you know, you think about the famous passage from Micah, and so God had revealed God's self to the, our ancestors, and to some extent, they were accountable for knowing uh, what was right in God's sight. So pro I'm going to guess that probably we would all say there is a God's eye view. The second part of the question is the hard part. Can we know it? And that's sort of a trick question because I'm not so sure it's capable of uh, answering without a little qualification. So uh, can we know it at all? Can we know it perfectly? Can we know it certainly? Mm, what do you think? But even if you qualify it and say, um, we can we can know it mostly, we can know a lot of it, we can know it rather imperfectly. It doesn't mean we give up, so why bother? Let's not try to find out. But we're going to address that today, and really what I want to do is not so much instruct, but to share with you something that, through the blessing of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, worked at our congregation this last year. And I'm going to invite you to ex consider experimenting with it at your congregation. Um, anyone in here at a church that's larger than a thousand? Mm, yeah, okay. Um, 
what about between um, 20 people and 500? Okay, okay. This, I think this could work. I'm not sure it would work in a, in a huge, huge congregation, but it might work in some subgroups. What this arose out of was, you may recall about mm, 16 months ago, there was a presidential election. Well, it was all those V words. It was uh, vicious, vitriolic. It was all the, you know, it was particularly bad in some respects. And so in our congregation, which is diverse, we had a diversity of opinions. And so we have a Sunday morning class, we have a fellowship break, coffee, donuts, then we have the assembly and the communion hour. Well, it got to where the, the fellowship break was, was pugilistic. How can you possibly think such and such? Well, how could you possibly think such and such? And it just degenerated into um, misunderstandings, which then the subtext of those misunderstandings seemed to be, well, any reasonable person would see it my way, or any thinking person, or then it became any good-hearted person, or any Christian, any believer would see it my way. And so it was... It was not a pretty scene during those months. And so uh, I chair the adult ed committee, and I was looking ahead for the next year, 2017, and uh, what classes we would have for our adult class. And <clears throat> we live right near Oklahoma Christian, so we're blessed with lots of great Bible teachers that can come out from the Bible faculty and, and teach for us, and they do that several quarters of year. But one or two quarters a year, we try to teach ourselves, teach from among ourselves. And so we, I decided, or I inquired, I suggested that we look into perspective and see how we could see things from different perspectives. Well, in, uh, it was... It was not just to make peace and to understand politics, but it had uh, some more specific goals. On your handout, I've put most of the verbiage for today's presentation, and the, the um, PowerPoint is mainly going to be photos to illustrate this. <clears throat> I'm sure you've all uh, familiar with the verse in 1 Samuel 16, uh, when uh, they were trying to pick the who was going to be the new... Uh, king of Israel, and checked out all the sons of Jesse, and you know, this one was good looking, this one was tall, this one was older, whatever, but it ended up, um, uh, the Lord does not see as, as mortals see, and so our beginning point is our perspective is not perfectly aligned with the divine, but, so what's the point? Here's what we decided to do. We would have different presenters from within the congregation, and they could use whatever format they wanted, and we would have them tell about how they saw things, how their experience, their profession, their place in life shaped their perspective, not only on how they interpreted scripture, but also how they interpreted the words and actions and events around them. You know, we're all bombarded with a gazillion data points, 
stimuli from within our environment. And we, we try to make sense of that by composing a narrative, an, an order, to say this is how the world works. This is how life is. And we do that unconsciously. We don't sit down and write out our framework and try to fit things into it, but that's what we do. And whether we're looking, lying on our back and, you know, like uh, uh, Charlie Brown or something, looking up at the clouds and seeing a doggy and a horsey and, uh, you know, what, or whether we're looking at the behavior of someone or the body language or the habits of someone sitting across from us in the congregation, we, we interpret constantly and we are influenced by our particular perspective where we're seeing them from so if you will on your handout look at the goals that we had I think they're pretty ambitious actually but to help our congregants understand that perspective is a significant factor in how we address scripture to also help us look inside ourselves and see that our perspective, individually and group, influences how we read not only scripture, but also one another's words and actions within the church and the larger community. <clears throat> A third goal was to help us develop an awareness of our own perspective, realize that that does shape how we tell our story about who we are and what, what choices we make, and then D and E in particular, to foster more compassion, humility, grace, and respect for those with whom we disagree so that to, we understand that to hear someone say, well, I see it completely differently is not an affront. Has anyone ever said that to you? I don't see it that way at all. Well, I live with a lot of people that say that to me on a regular basis. But, but some people are so genteel, maybe they never hear those words. Maybe everybody just makes nice with them. And uh, however, that is not an insult necessarily. It's a, a declaration, a candid declaration of someone's perspective. It doesn't mean that all, all uh, conclusions are correct and anything goes and there's your truth and my truth and your reality and my reality, but it does mean that we are looking for the wisdom and the meaning of our scriptural text or of how some of our congregants behave or what their needs may be uh, being expressed. We're looking for that based on our particular and therefore limited perspectives. And then E, to nurture more reliance on the grace and mercy and love of God uh, rather than on an assurance that we understand everything perfectly. Well, as I said, in our congregation, we have a diversity of uh, uh, careers represented. And so uh, our little church has about 150 people. So we invited people to tell a little bit about their, the things that shape their perspective. It's generally their training and their job, uh, but sometimes their uh, their station in life or their time of life, if they're a parent of young children or uh, a grandmother or a widow or something like that, we invited them to just talk about themselves personally and how that shapes how they read a particular scripture. So on uh, an, the next page of your handout, you'll see some of the people that we ha had teach for us. And if you'll see, we had uh, week two, we had an art teacher we had a, a literary professor from Oklahoma Christian, 
uh, we, we actually had two of those. And uh, the, the week four was about perspectives in Gothic literature, and uh, he's not here, so I can tell this about uh, this Gothic literature. I don't get, and uh, and it, it it even connected with zombie literature, and you know, but. No wonder I, you know, no wonder you're so weird, Travis. This is what you read all day, you know. Okay, so uh, so it was it was useful. Um, week five, we had a, a Daryl Tippins talk to us about uh, perspectives, differences in power relations. If you're the one with the power and you offer your opinion about something, uh, then. You think, okay, I'm just offering my opinion. But what if you're the uh, one without the power in a group, and you offer you op your opinion? Does that does that look differently, or or feel, or does it look different or feel different? Um, you're both just offering your opinion. But if you're a church leader, have you ever felt like you were in a class or in a committee meeting or some assembly where? you are almost hesitant to speak because if you do, someone will think, well, they're laying down the law for us. You know, we'll let everybody else talk and then they'll tell us how it really is. Well, so where you are at, the, at that time in life in that power differential can, can shape our perspective a lot. And so you may be thinking, I'm just offering my opinion and someone else may be hearing that as, well, she's laying down the law. You know, this is how it's gonna be. And <clears throat> I remember, this is a confession, but about 20 years ago, our congregation was t considering uh, the hiring of a youth minister, and we took a, ch a church survey about where people uh, were and what they thought, what they felt about that, and a couple of us uh, were open about what we said, op we, we spoke openly about it, and I don't even remember the format or the context. But afterwards, uh, one of the elders' wives came to me and said, came to our house, so that means it's a big deal, came to our house and said, um, you may want to uh, ask that question of the whole congregation again, maybe in a written format or some other vehicle, because there are people who are of the opinion that, well, if Sherry Lee Woodward and Linda, Linda King uh, are, uh, agree about something, you better get out of the way because it's probably going to happen. Well, that hurt me on my last feeling, you know. Uh, I thought, I didn't think I was a bully. I didn't think I was overbearing. Uh, I thought I was just expressing my opinion just like everybody else. But from other people's perspective, hmm. That was very chastening. Uh, that's why I still remember it from 20 years ago. Um, I'll get over it sometime, but, it, but anyway. Uh, so it was a lesson to me in perspective. I thought I was just voicing my opinion, but you have to consider the perspective of someone else who's out listening. Well, here's one of the most interesting ones. You see there week six, we have a pathologist in our congregation and he talked about the view through the microscope. And it was so, oh, oh, fascinating. And one of the things he said was, he went into pathology because you're looking, uh, you're not in 
looking so much as an, at an x-ray or listening from the outside through a stethoscope. You are looking at the disease, the real thing there the, in that cell uh, or group of cells in that sl slice on the, on the microscope. You're looking at the actual thing. It's really kind of unmediated. Well, that was the naive thing he thought because he said, actually, when you get into it in pathology, what you see sometimes depends on the angle at which the slice was taken or how thick the slice was or what, what particular part of that specimen you're looking at. And even then, you have to know what you're, it helps to know what you're looking for. And he said, so pathologists stain for something. They stain for it. And, I, and so he elaborated on that and said, if we are looking for a certain kind of cancer cell and we know it reacts to, I don't know, iodine or some such, uh, some chemical, we will, if, we're, if we expect to see it or we're searching for it, we will stain for that and that will make it show up brilliantly when it, if it's present. Otherwise, sometimes it is so vague or, or confusing to, to know what you're looking at, even through the microscope, through a high-powered microscope. And so there is interpretation that goes on even when you're looking directly at the, the it under the microscope. Well, I have thought about that because um, a couple of years ago, um, well, several years ago, I started working on uh, an intense study of the Gospel of John, and I was seeing abundance on every page, the, a theme of abundance. And so I started looking at the literature. You wouldn't believe how many thousands of books have been written and articles about the Gospel of John. But I started looking at it, and no one had ever really identified abundance as a principal theme of the fourth gospel. And so I thought, well, how could all these centuries of scholars and, and preachers and commentators and all that, how could they have not seen what is so uh, jumping off the page at me? And so am, am I off base? Am I seeing something they didn't? And so I, I realized, well, so I began going through the Gospel of John and staining for abundance. I started looking for every suggestion, uh, motif, little whiff, little hint, or outright declaration of fullness, abundance, things like that. And they were everywhere. And so uh, I, I retained that metaphor of staining for something uh, now when I, when I look at something. And so if I'm trying to interpret uh, the reaction of the congregation to something maybe the elders have said, or uh, how how my children, uh, whatever, uh, respond to, to opening their Christmas presents or whatever. When you're trying to interpret a set of facts or a text or people's behavior, uh, consider if we are if we are and whether we should be staining for something, and if, uh, and that will shape our perspective. Well, we had a mathematician in the congregation. What does math have to do with, you know, scriptural inter interpretation? But he looked at things in a, in a certain way. Uh, we had a Native American grandmother, uh, <clears throat> a single grandmother, and she, from her background, uh, 
interprets things in, uh, in a particularly beautiful way. We had a family lawyer. Uh, we had, well, we, we had uh, all this variety. So think about your congregation and the various uh, professions and experiences that are represented there and fantasize about how you might do this because I want to tell you it worked out wonderfully. But we had to get people's consciousness raised a little bit. So Eric, would you please advance the next slide? <clears throat> okay, next. This was our goals. This was our, our uh, plan, next. Okay, everybody's seen this before probably, but what is this? What's this a picture of? It can either be two profiles, can't it? Or it can be sort of a candlestick or urn or something like that in the middle. In the middle. Sort of depends on whether you first focus on what you see as foreground and what is background. Next, please. Same thing here. Do you see the profiles in there? It, it can be. This can be someone's nose, open mouth, chin, or it can be the underside, the, un, the view from the underside of a vase. Next, please. What's this? It's a rabbit or a duck. Uh, you know those, uh, those phony sandwiches that are like tofurkey or something like that? Well, this is like a a, a ruck or something. Um, it sort of depends on what jumps out at you. Next, please. What's that? Yes, Bartola. Um, most people see a, a, a human face first. I think we're all engineered biologically to see, to look for something like us and look at, at humans first. Uh, so, but it's actually uh, clearly a, a writing in script of the word liar. Uh, just, is it one or the other? It just depends on your perspective. Next, please. You've probably seen this a hundred times. It's probably, it could be uh, an Alaskan indigenous person, a native uh, uh, Alaskan, we would have said Eskimo, or it could be a, a person's in profile. Next, please. You've probably seen that before, too. It's it, it, two not very attractive people. Uh, it, it might be a man with a big proboscis, proboscis whatever you say, big nose, and, uh, and a mustache. Or it could be uh, a Scottish dowager kind of looking at you at an angle. Next, please. What about this? What do you... What, it, when I first saw it, I thought it was a bunch of chess men. And then I thought, no, somebody's standing there. That's got to be a marble uh, plinth or platform, and then that's, uh, uh, those are columns. And then I started looking, and there's all these people in there. Huh. And so my husband and I both practice law. I know there's some other lawyers in the room. Uh, the first thing they teach you in torts and criminal law and all that, is that eyewitnesses make notoriously bad observers. And if you're a mother or a father and you see um, a couple of cars about to collide and a child runs into the street, what are you going to remember about that whole incident? You're likely to remember and focus on the, the outcome for that child and protecting that child. What if you're um, a policeman who spends half of every day ticketing people who are on their cell phones. 
the first thing you're looking at might be, do we have a distracted driver here? What if you're a healthcare professional? You might be, the first thing is, is someone having a, a cardiac event going on? We, uh, we know that we have to consider the perspectives of those who are observing, but that doesn't settle it any, any way at all. And it doesn't mean that two out of three of them are liars. Different perspectives. Okay, next please. What about that? Yep. If you're a musician, you might see that saxophone, but most of us see the face of a, a pretty woman, kind of a silhouette of a pretty woman. Next, please. You know, we all think that's an elephant because we expect to see an elephant, but it's not precisely an elephant because it has one too many legs or two too many legs or, you know, it's some kind of an anomaly. But... Uh, and has no tail visible. But anyway, we, we generally would say that's an elephant. We fit it into what we expect to find. Next, please. What about that? Is that a flower, a beautiful flower in bud? Or is it a female face? What, which did you see first? If you're a botanist, you probably saw the, face, the flower first. If you're the painter of portraits, or a romantic, maybe you saw that beautiful face with a butterfly nose and rose petal lips. It just depends in part on your perspective. Next, Eric. This is kind of icky picture, but what is that? What do you see? Anybody in here play the guitar? Look at, uh, look at the facial features of this uh, grandma and grandpa here and they are a senor and a senorita. And this ear over here on the man is a woman coming out of some sort of adobe structure. And there, the hat of the, of the guitar player is the old man's eyebrow. You know, and once you see it, it's kind of hard to unsee it, isn't it? Once it's been pointed out to you. Um, okay, next please. So we talked about what are some of the factors that affect what you saw, what you expected to see, your familiarity with that particular genre or whatever it might be, um, your own personal experiences, your feelings. And neuroscientists have confirmed that um, events that are accompanied by a ten intense emotion tend to be imprinted in our memory and that memory may or may not be stable. It may morph over time, but we're gonna remember it intensely and be sure we know what we saw. Um, so emotion can affect what we perceive or the medium, whether it's a painting, sculpture, an event we're interpreting, a text we're interpreting. Next, please. <clears throat> For my part, I just did the, uh, the kickoff as the only one I did in this class. And so what I did was show a film called Powers of Ten. If, it's an old film, and you can find it on YouTube. So if you decide to do this in your congregation, you might check out Powers of Ten. And what they did was they took a picture of a couple in a park, in a Chicago park on a sunny afternoon having a picnic. And then, and you got a close-up of it, and then they went out uh, to the power of 10 and show, you could see all of uh, the Chicago Pier and everything. Um, you could see Chicago from the air. Then they went to the next 10th power and you could see um, 
most of the United States actually by that time. Then they went out 10 more and you see the Earth and then 10 more and 10 more and 10 more. And it went out till you were in, out, you were in space and Earth was a little dot. Well, so what you saw depended on a lot of things. It depended on your perspective. And then they zoomed back in and they started going down in this film. And so they went to the woman or the man's hand at the picnic. And then they went into the cellular level. And then they went even deeper. And so it was really uh, instructive for people like me who are not uh, astronomers or anything like that. It was very instructive to see really how narrow our field of ordinary interpretation is we are we are constrained we are finite and so it was it was interesting to see how seeing the very same scene from different distances different perspectives um, what it said about our concept of reality and maybe you've heard this before but sometimes it doesn't hurt to hear things more than once um, I often tease Eric I said I've heard those magic words, you were right, dear, a thousand times, and I'm never tired of it. So, uh, so if you've heard this before, that's okay. But some of our early astronauts, when they were on the moon or in space, and they'd look back at the Earth, and I remember one was Russell, Russell Schweikert, but others have done it. They looked back at the beautiful Earth that looked like the big blue marble, and they knew it, it was so gorgeous. It was, it was beautiful beyond words, unspeakable. And they were, they were awed by it. And yet they knew that on that marble down there, there were boundaries and wars and uh, atrocities and genocides and hunger and pain and torture and war. You know, they knew all of that. And yet, from the perspective of space, it was so beautiful and it and they talk they have written some of these astronauts about how it changed them to realize that both things are true and so when we're thinking about is there a God's eye perspective and can we know it um, yes there there surely is a God's a God's sight a God's eye view but our our capacity to know it is in part dependent on our perspective Okay, go ahead, Eric, please. Recognize that that galaxy? Milky Way. It ain't just a candy bar. Um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's the beautiful Milky Way, and if you've ever been to an observatory or someplace in the country that has true dark skies, it is breathtaking, just breathtaking to see it just covering the the heavens from one side to the other, from one horizon to the other. Next, please. There's, I have a couple of pictures of it just because I'm in love with it. Next. Okay, now next, please. But that's also a galaxy. It's also the Milky Way. Next, please. Next. And look at that from Voyager spacecraft, 3.7 billion miles away. Look what our Earth looks like and our, our little galaxy. Well, which is God's perspective? Who? All of the above, maybe? I don't know. So this was, this was kind of our intro, and you could find lots of other optical illusions and lots of other examples, probably better than these, but it was a way to uh, awaken the congregation 
to the idea that, well, our perspective is limited in some ways and, it, and, and limiting in some ways. Okay, next, please. So then the next thing we did was uh, we did an exercise and we looked at how we interpret scripture, uh, how we read scripture uh, through other people's eyes. And so here are some of the examples we used. And it was interesting because on the program this week, there was a speaker whose topic was um, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba sitting in a tree, which I thought was a wonderful title. But anyway, I went to it. And, uh, <clears throat> and so these happened to be uh, three women in Scripture that we used to talk about perspective. And there are a couple of tam Tamars. Tamar, Tamar, in the, in the Old Testament, but this particular one is the daughter-in-law of Judah. And you might remember that story from uh, Genesis 38, where, uh, you know, the tradition was that if someone is wi uh, widowed, then the brother-in-law has to, uh, the, the brother of the decedent has to uh, marry the widow and produce children for his deceased brother and so forth. Well, Judah had uh, his first son was Er or something. His second son was Onan and his third son was Shelah. There's a problem right there. Don't name your son Shelah. But anyway, um, he was, so Judah had Er, Onan, and Shelah. Well, Er sinned and the, the scripture says the Lord put him to death. Then Onan sinned, and the Lord put him to, and he died, and the Lord put him to death. And so Judah didn't want to lose his last son, so he decided he would not obey that commandment. And he promised Tamar, who had no children, that, uh, well, just let Sheila grow up, and then you can marry him. And, but he, he had no intention of doing that and didn't do that. So you probably remember the story, she dressed, at, she took matters into her own hands, and she dressed as a prostitute, went and put herself by the side of the, the road, although one reference calls her a temple prostitute, so I'm not sure if she was outside some shrine or something, but, uh, and she veiled herself, and so uh, Judah came to her uh, to employ her services as a prostitute, and uh, she demanded of him uh, some token. He said, I'll pay you with a, a sheep or a lamb or a calf. He was going to give her something and pay her that way. And she said, well, no, uh, I want something as a pledge that uh, for when you bring me back that sheep. And so she took his signet ring and she took his staff, and I think there was a third thing she took. Well, anyhow, uh, later on it came out that she was pregnant, and Judah was one of the first to say, well, let's go, she has to be killed. And then there was the grand, as they say, there was the big reveal. And so it turned out that uh, she ex exposed Judah as the perpetrator as the father of this uh, son of a harlot, of a prostitute. And Judah then had no really option except to exclaim, uh, she is more righteous than I. Well, uh, you can read that uh, the rabbinic, uh, there are rabbinic sources that treat Tamar 
as a heroine because she maintained the line of Judah from which the Lord came, from which Jesus came. And we don't really think of her as a heroine. We, uh, we might think of her generally. I think I was raised or taught or somehow came to think of her as a manipulator, a woman that used her um, uh, seductive or sexual uh, assets uh, in a wicked way to get what she wanted or what she thought she was entitled to. But there is, uh, there are other ways of looking at that. And if you have, um, if you have been involved in a ministry that helps women out of the uh, sex trade or helps um, people who've been in human slavery and things like that, you might see this story as a little bit different from from the hardline way that, uh, which I thought was the only way to look at it and might identify with Tamar more than with Judah, who uh, exploited her for his own purposes. Well, then there's the story of Rahab in Joshua 2. And you never hear Rahab's name alone. It's Rahab the what? Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab... I don't think I grew up hearing Rahab the whore, but it was named Rahab the harlot. And she's even referred to that way in Hebrews 11 when she's celebrated as a, as a hero of faith. <clears throat> but uh, if you go back and read Joshua 2 and then again in Joshua 6 when, when they actually began the conquest and came in and marched around Jericho and took Jericho and she was saved, uh, there are different that you get kind of a different picture of Rahab if you think of it, the story from her point of view. And I want to show you how some artists, well, I want Eric, go next, please. First, here's some pictures of the way Tamar has been artistically depicted. Now, you know, art is not scripture, but art is an interpretation of what happened in scripture. And we, we paint these pictures internally, whether we paint them on canvas or not. Well, this one really, I think, makes her uh, look quite suggestive. And poor old Judah, he didn't have a chance. Next, please. This one looks like Tamar triumphant, and she got what she wanted. Uh, and there she is with his staff and, and so forth. This is from a uh, 15th century woodcut, a woodblock. Um, next, please, Eric. This shows a veiled, but but pretty. Um, hmm. I don't know. It looks like they're enga engaged in a, in a therapeutic counseling session, actually, more than uh, a financial transaction <clears throat> that involves sex. Um, next, please. Uh, this is a little later one, and <laughs> see that little thin veil? You think. Couldn't he see through that veil and recognize his daughter-in-law? But, uh, but sometimes we don't see through the veils and recognize what's there very well. Um, it does suggest a difference in power relations. Next, please, Eric. This is by artist Mark Chagall. And I've not read about this painting, but to me it suggests that, um, that they both... Um, both sinned and both suffered in the, in the encounter. Uh, 
nobody was a great winner. Next, please. This is like Tamar triumphant, and this was uh, suggestive of she got what she needed or what she deserved or what she wanted, uh, including a declaration that she was more righteous than Judah. Next, please. This is hard to look at, isn't it? This is a contemporary picture and, and of what it might have been like. And Judah is thinking about his own needs. He was a widower. And Tamar was thinking about, well, I've just got to get through this. I just have to endure it in order for him to continue living. And so, which is, next please, will the real Tamar please stand? Okay, next please. So, then we get into the story of Rahab. And <clears throat> here are the two spies in there. If you read Joshua 2, those spies seem like, uh, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm too harsh to judge, but they just seem like they were doofuses. Um, they've been sent in to spy out the land, and the first thing they do is they go to the whorehouse. And then they get in there, and somebody has told on them, and so they have to go hide upstairs on the roof. And then... Um, they enter into this bargain. They go back and they're supposed to report to uh, Joshua, who's waiting on the other side of the river, uh, uh, to enter into the land. And they failed in that mission. They didn't have anything to report except exactly what Rahab had told them, which is that the, the people here have heard about your victories and victories under the Lord. And so they're trembling and they're faint-hearted and trembling in fear. So the spies uh, basically turn tail and run back to Joshua, sneak out and, and run back. And they don't seem, they're not listed in the Heroes of Faith chapter anyway. Uh, but next, please. This might have been the version that we all got in our Sunday school papers, you know, like in 1960 or 70 or something. It was pretty, pretty tame. And there's the spies running up to the roof. Next, please. Or maybe it was this one. Um, uh, Rahab looks like um, uh, sister so-and-so of the convent of St. Such-and-Such. And really she was, you know, the, the prostitute. But she's hiding the spies up there on the roof where they're sleeping. Next, please. But maybe she was like that. Maybe that's... Um, she was trying to protect herself, protect her family, and doing whatever it takes. Um, she she was a very she was a pragmatist, and she had heard about the uh, the victories of Yahweh, and she probably was legitimately afraid. Um, okay, next please. And as you recall, she was told by the spy she negotiated a, a transaction that if uh, when they came in to conquer the land, she'd help them escape, but then they would protect her family and her. With, and she would have to post this red cord. Okay, next. That's been the subject of a lot of artistic interpretations, and some of them are very beautiful. Next. This might be what it, uh, this is sort of a contemporary view of it. Next, please. This looks like a little mermaid to me. Uh, but uh, there she was up there with her, her red cord. 
I don't know. I don't know how accurate that, but next, please. Again, this is another Chagall. And there are the spies up on the roof, and they're in chaos. And there's Rahab basically uh, selling her body, but uh, helping them, uh, helping them escape. And who's in charge here? Who's next, Eric, please? This is a, a contemplative Rahab. Doesn't look real happy, but looks like... Um, she, that might be a, a decent rendering of, of what it, how a prostitute may have been dressed, but I don't know for sure. Next, please. There's your Sunday school pamphlet right there. Next, please. What about this? <clears throat> what does that suggest to you? Does that look like blood? There are scholars that... that see a, an overtone, an echo, a connection between uh, the scarlet th thread of Rahab that by posting that on, uh, at her house, it, the, the destruction and death passed over her house. So they see a connection or an echo of that and the Passover blood. Um, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but... These are different things that people have, have uh, seen in there. And, of course, it could be argued that that looks like menstrual blood as well as a red cord out a window. I mean, who, it's all in the perspective. Next, please. So who is the real Rahab? Was she just a pragmatist? Was she a, a true believer? Was she just saying, well, I'm going to cast my fate with Yahweh and Joshua and the people and, and come what may? Um, was she a spy on behalf of the, of the king or the ruler of uh, Jericho uh, and a traitor? Because she told lies. She, she, lied to the, she lied to the king who said, come bring out those spies. Next, please. Okay, what about Mary? There are 1.5 gazillion pictures and depictions of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And mo many of them, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed, many of them, Mary is dressed in blue. Uh, She's often in blue, holding baby Jesus with this beatific smile. Um, I don't know uh, why people thought Palestinians, you know, like uh, had red hair. But often Mary and baby Jesus have red hair. Really often Mary Magdalene is depicted with red hair. Next, please. But there's this sweet um, fantasy of how... Uh, how it would have been for Mary. Next, please. I like this one. You've probably seen this one on Christmas cards and everything. This is uh, rest on the way to Egypt, you know, when the family had to flee. And they're out in the middle of nowhere, and she and her baby are sitting on the Sphinx. I just, I just think, yeah, yeah, I wonder what that was. And, and Mary and the baby Jesus are highlighted there. Uh, they, they get the... the light and so I, I really like that one we don't think about that incident very much what it would have been like for for Mary next please uh, we're just going to go through some of these uh, this is an icon from an eastern church next please <laughs> this is uh, uh, again from the 16th century I think it was Flemish uh, baby Jesus is reading the bible there 
Uh, you know, when Jesus went into the synagogue, he didn't pick up a Bible that was bound like that. He picked up scrolls. They didn't know no Bibles at that time. But uh, this is how the, uh, the artist r rendered that. And Mary was teaching, was teaching Jesus and having him read the Bible. Uh, and isn't it curious that their houses in Palestine look just like, you know, Flanders in 1600? Okay, next, please. Next, yeah, there we go. Uh, for Roman Catholics and, and many Orthodox, Mary's considered the, the queen of heaven, the Christ bearer, and so she's depicted wearing a crown. And that, okay, here's another confession. When, uh, when I was in fourth grade, my grandmother gave all of us kids uh, little white Bibles at Easter, and they had a zipper on them, and they had a cross on the zipper. And my dad had been raised so vehemently anti-Catholic that he, made, he cut the crosses off the zipper. We couldn't carry those with a cross on the zipper. And so if you were raised in that kind of background, uh, you think, uh, 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 heresy, we're not having Mary with a crown on her head. But next, please. When she doesn't have a crown, she's often depicted with this nimbus, this golden uh, uh, aura around her and even reigning like a, like a co-reigner. Uh, next, please. Okay, there she is in blue again. That's from an altarpiece. Next, please. Okay, was this painting done? This, was this interpreted by a female? Uh-uh. Uh, look at that poor little naked baby Jesus lying out there on the cold concrete. Uh, and they're just looking at him from afar, that isn't going to happen. Um, it, I, you just, I had to laugh when I saw this. And, uh, of course, they are all so Northern European looking there. But, uh, but anyhow, I just thought, oh, man, look how somebody interpreted that. But they didn't know anything about being a parent of an infant. Okay, go ahead. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Keep going. Here's some more. Here's a black Madonna. Go ahead. Uh, this one is uh, Mary Immaculate Triumph and Reign. So this is like Queen Mary, Mother Mary, that sort of thing. And again, you have your little um, Caucasian, red-headed baby Jesus and Mary, blue-eyed Mary. But w w the thing is, we, in, we in read these scriptures. We all read them and we interpret them artistically, in our storytelling, in our narratives, how we see them based on our own experience and our own context. Next, please. Yes, your Greek one. Uh-huh. Next. Next. Keep going. Next. When you think of Mary, do you think of Mary at the foot of, do you think of Mary, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows? There's not so much said in the, in the Gospels about Mary, but there's some that really jump out at me and may at some of you um, uh, in Luke 1 and Luke 2. And it, uh, for example, when, um, when Simeon uh, spoke to her and, and the prophet Simeon and when Jesus was presented at the temple and, and uh, told her some things and she said, and it says, 
in Luke 1, Mary pondered these things in his heart. In Luke 2, um, Mary was told, and a sword will pierce your own heart. What if you were holding your infant and someone said, you know, this child is for you know, the salvation of many, and, but a sword is going to pierce your own heart. Is that something you'd forget, or would you take that home and hold that uh, uh, the rest of your life, every day? Is, is today the day? What's, what, was that, what was that prophet saying to me? The one I love, and I don't know if it's ever jumped out at you or not, but you know when Jesus went to the temple and was disputing with the elders at age 12, and he, his parents thought he was with them when they returned home, and he wasn't, and they came back. What did Mary exclaim when they, when they found him? Who, who remembers? She said, son, what have you, what have you, why have you done this to us? Isn't that just like a mother? Why have you done this to us? You, you personalize, it feels like a personal um, rejection, and that's speaking out of uh, the fear of having a lost child and, and the agony and the anguish and the anxiety and all of that. But why have you done this to me? And uh, if you've ever caught yourself saying that to your child or thinking it to your child, how could you do this? And it wasn't about Mary and Joseph, but that was her perspective. It was something Jesus had done to them. Okay. Um, then there's Mary at the foot of the cross. Next, please. I really like this one. Um, Mary has a somber look on her face. She has the golden nimbus or aura. Next, please, holding the baby Jesus. But I see in her face a lot of these scriptural references I have just meant. So, who's the real Mary? All right, next, we'll move on quickly. Um, I told you the pathologist uh, that spoke to us talked about staining for something and this is an example of what he gave one of his slides and I can't even remember what this slide was of it looks like um it looks like the half price produce bin at Sprouts or something to me but but it's a bunch of stuff and this is what it looked like under the slide and then they stained for something and this is what it looked like you know, anything that reacts to X will do it, will stain, and it'll show up this way. Y, this way, Z, something else. And you can distinguish things, particularly small things in the background and otherwise, but they have, they have stained for it. Some things they have foregrounded or intensified, and others not so much. Next, please. Okay, this uh, last semester, just for jollies, I took a class in, um, in Deuteronomic history. So it was... It was, uh, really, it was Joshua through 2 Kings. And one of our assignments was to take a figure from Samuel or Kings or something and, and see how it had been rendered in contemporary interpretation. So I had a partner, and he and I decided we would look at cinematic treatments of King David. Next, please. So we found, there's a bunch of movies out there, but we found three that were, uh, that you could bear to watch and uh and some some were pretty good and some were just like oh my goodness uh but the first one the oldest one was Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward and that was from 1951 okay in this every one of these movies there's three depicted up here every one of them was full of scripture and I mean King James scripture they probably each quoted two or three hundred verses verbatim from the King James, but they depicted David 
completely differently. Our time is almost up, but I want to tell you, um, uh, the first one was right after World War II, and in it, uh, Gregory Peck, King David, was a man's man. And it was, it, there was anxiety, the interpreters of this movie say there was anxiety in soldiers coming home from war, and the women had been out next, keep going, they'd been out being Rosie the Riveter or whatever, and they weren't going to go back. They, you know, they wanted to speak up, and so it was, there was this negotiation of gender roles and soldiers coming home. Next, please. The second one was Richard Gere, and it was in 85. And Richard Gere was so sensitive, and 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 he was a peacenik, and he. Um, this movie was really a critique, more or less, of the hippie movement, because his passivity ended up being portrayed as his major weakness. Okay, it was it was interesting. So he was not really a heroic figure. The third one, okay, I'm I'm getting the here. The third one was um, in 2005. And you could really see the influences of feminism in, it, feminism in it. And it showed Bathsheba basically as uh, a, an equal partner with David and helping him make decisions. And actually, she wanted him to see her on that, you know. We always say she was on the roof. No, David was on the roof. She was, she, it doesn't say she was on the roof. But, um, but whatever, uh, there, there were several opportunities in that movie uh, to depict how David's life was saved and shaped by woman after woman, by Michael, Abigail, the woman, the wise woman of Tekoa who came to him, and Bathsheba. Next, please. So all of this, how we have interpreted it, is called reception history. And the question is, can we disregard that? Should we try? And I'm suggesting that the answer is no. We can't really escape it if we tried. How the, how the church has interpreted the scriptures for 2,000 years. Next, please. But to observe and understand the past is to forgive and to be humble in our current approach to a text and to acknowledge our own perspectives, blind spots, and fallibilities. It reminds us that we're saved by grace through faith and not by a perfect understanding of a given story or command. Well, I want to tell you that when we finished this series, we practically had to turn off the lights and kick people out with the cattle prod because they wanted to keep going. And it, it didn't have anything to do with me and any one particular one of our speakers, but it was so instructive that we could see, we, we learned among ourselves over that quarter that people can read a text and see different things in it and, and we better be humble before we say, this is the God's eye view of this, the, the one and only way to see this. So I encourage you to just let your fantasies uh, go down the church directory and see who do we have here, and wouldn't it be interesting to see how they read this scripture? And each teacher we had, we asked them, invited them to take a scripture and read it from their particular perspective. So for mine, I used uh, Abigail, the story of Abigail, but other people used different passages. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. We got to know each other better, but there was a more, even a better lesson in it than that. So go try it. Go try it and see how it works. Thank you.